well, we've been in a series called Live No Lies for a few weeks now, and uh, it's based on a book of the same name by John Mark Comer. If you haven't read the book, I recommend you read the book. It is a really great resource. And uh, we've been talking about how we're waging war with three enemies of peace, uh, three enemies of our hearts, and those enemies are the devil, the flesh, and the world. And we've been building a strategy to stand against these three enemies. We've talked about the devil so far. We've talked about the flesh for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and today we're going to talk about a unique enemy of peace, one that's a little bit different than the other two, one that we have to be particularly careful about how we build our defense against. Because today we're going to be talking about the world. And the world is a very complicated enemy. I mean, it's the world the whole world. I mean, that's, that's a difficult thing to understand how to defend against the world. And the reality, and what I hope to show you this morning, is that the world, all of the world around you, is constantly working against your best interests. Through the brokenness that has infiltrated every part of society, this world is stealing your peace and shaking the foundations of what you know about good and evil. The devil uses the desires of your flesh combined with the brokenness of this world to rob you of your peace, steal your satisfaction, poison your purpose, and render you ineffective. We are being attacked on all sides. It's going to be an encouraging message today. Get ready for that. I will have some fun. Uh, the world. And the world is an enemy that's unique to us because it's an enemy that we're meant to be around. It is, in fact, an enemy that is in desperate need of what we bring to the table. It is an enemy that we can't remove ourselves from. We can't actively oppose. It's an enemy that we have to be in, but not of. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying his final prayer before he's arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is an incredible chapter of Scripture. Uh, if you know the story, Jesus has come from the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, he admits not only that he knows he's about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified, but he knows who's doing it. He knows that Judas was going to betray him. He was aware of the full events of that evening. And that's terrifying. Because he was about to be beaten within an inch of his life and then hung up on a cross, tortured and killed on behalf of my sins. And that's the burden he's carrying. And so he has this meal where he gives some crucial instructions to his followers. And then they, they take this walk and he continues to teach them and to give them some last minute uh, encouragement. He tells them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, 15. And they're walking to the garden. They get to the garden and he leaves some of the disciples uh, to pray. He asks everyone to pray and to pray for him and to pray together. And uh, they all fall asleep immediately. He takes three of his closest disciples and brings them closer to where he is and asks them to please stay awake and, and pray with him. And they fall asleep right away. And Jesus goes a little bit further away and he's alone and he's praying. He's praying his final prayer before he would be arrested uh, and tried and beaten and crucified. All these things are about to happen. He prays some really special things. One of the things he prays is that God would remove this cup. You know, it shows the humanity of Jesus. He, he says, God, don't let me be tortured and killed if there's any other way to save these people. But if there isn't, then your will is my will. I want to do what you want me to do. And then he begins to pray for his disciples, the guys who were sleeping when he asked them to stay awake. And then he prays for you and me. In one of his final prayers on this earth, his attention is still on us. 
And so in John chapter 17, we see that prayer beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, I'm coming to you now. He's speaking to God. You know, he knows his time is up. But I say these things while I am still in this world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's about to pray about the disciples place in the world. And it's important to understand that as he does, and you've got to remember this phrase as we go forward because it's so important. Jesus is praying over our position in this world because he desperately wants us to get it right. And the reason that he wants us to get it right is because he wants us to experience the full measure of his joy. His concern for you is that you might be able to have real joy inside of you. That you might experience what the Hebrew word calls shalom, real peace, blessing deep down in your soul. His goal for you is that you would be removed from the, the, there's always going to be pain and suffering in this world. Jesus tells his disciples that just a few moments before this, hey, in this world, you're going to have suffering. That's going to happen. But he still believes they can experience joy and peace and satisfaction in this life. And that's what he's praying for them right now. Uh, We all want to be happy. But over and over again, the Bible teaches us that real happiness is only experienced once we submit ourselves to God and live his way. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And so here we see it clear that our solution to the world being an enemy of our peace is not to completely remove ourselves from it. That's important to remember. We'll come back to that. Verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it sanctify them by, by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be made holy. And he wants his people, his followers to be set apart from this world, even though they're still going to be in it. And the way that that's going to happen is by God's truth. The only truth that actually is truth. Help them understand that God sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And this is the common theme of scripture that we have to pay attention to when we're talking about something like the world. Because what the world is going to do, and we're going to talk about today, is constantly ask you, what is truth? It's going to redefine it for you. It's going to push truth upon you. It's going to make you question what you understand and know about truth. And here in this prayer, Jesus is revealing the absolute truth. He says, your word is truth. And the thing that's going to help them to remain in this world, but not be a part of it, is your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent them into this world. And this is important because this world is an enemy of your peace. However, you cannot be removed from it because you have been sent to it. In all the Old Testament, there is a common narrative of people rebelling against God and defining truth for themselves. And God always offers redemption. And finally, he gets to the point where he offers an absolute moment of redemption in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is praying here. He says, God, you've sent me into this world and I am sending them. Jesus was sent as the absolute moment of hope 
and joy and peace for the people living in this world. And he says, he passes that torch onto you and I. It is now our responsibility to bring hope and joy and peace into this world if we are set apart for the truth of God. You sent me into this world and I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they, may t- they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus is saying that our solution is not to remove ourselves from the world, but rather he wants us in it. He is our solution. Now, I'm going to explain what all that means. Uh, first, let me just back up and answer this one basic question. Number one, I'm going to answer three questions today. That's all I got for you. Three questions I'm going to answer. Number one, what is the world? What is the world? What do I mean by the world? Talking about the world, what do I mean by the world? I'm sure you know what the world is. It's planet Earth. It's where we live. It's the only world we got. Maybe you think, uh, when I say the world, you think about humanity, the human race, people, uh, all the people around us. Uh, The world is all of that. It's all of us and everything. So how could the whole world be an enemy of peace? Be an enemy of the people of God. It's the world. Isn't that kind of a generalization? I mean, surely the world is not all bad. And you're right. Uh, The world is not all bad. Humanity can be pretty awesome sometimes. I cry every single episode of American Idol. There is somebody who they have put on there simply to make me cry. Humanity can be pretty great. Uh, And this planet is absolutely wonderful. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the country. There's no doubt that this planet, that these people have a great capacity for good. And so what do we mean by the world? I'm so glad that you asked. I'd love to tell you. Uh, In the New Testament, Jesus and Paul, they talk about the world the most in the context that I'm going to be referring to today. Now, the word that they're using is cosmos, which is a Greek word that just means the world, the same way that I'm saying the world in English. It could be used to mean humanity, all the people. It can be used to mean the planet that we live on. But we also see it, and we primarily see it, used by Jesus and Paul in this third meaning. In this third meaning, uh, John Mark Comer defines as this in the book Live No Lies. He says, the world is the systems, practices, and standards associated with secular society that are integrated into the mainstream and institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. Rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. He's talking about our culture. The world is our culture. Our societal morals, our combined moral compass as a society, the direction everyone sways in. It's the way we operate as a people and what we perceive together as a people to be right and wrong. And it's corrupted by what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. So I've talked about Genesis chapter 3 in every week that I've taught in this series and The reason for that is because this battle that we are waging against these three enemies all began right there in Genesis chapter 3. And it's so crucial for us to understand the implications of Genesis chapter 3 on our everyday lives. Look back at it with me in Genesis 3 verse 1. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree 
in the garden. And this is where it began. This questioning of God's words. What, what is truth? What did he really mean by that? Maybe we should interpret it for ourselves. What does he mean by that? Let me pit myself against God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit in the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And then the serpent said, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Rebellion against God. God is just keeping the best things from you. That's, he's, he's just being selfish. You should rebel against that because there are good things he's trying to keep away from you. That is still a moral thread in our society. That's still one of the defining lies of the enemy. Rebellion against God and then redefinition of good and evil. Surely you will not die. God couldn't have meant that. What do we think he really meant? I think Eve, that you are the best person to define that. And if you eat from this tree, you'll be even better at it than God is. We are living in the consequences of that decision. The devil convinces Adam and Eve to distance themselves from God, to define good and evil for themselves. And it's the outcome we live in today. And the results of that are all around us. The world in this context is very simply the standards, morals, and accepted worldview that a majority of our society has embraced. And it's also the constant rampant effects of those standards, morals, and worldviews. It's the bombardment of all of these things all of the time in all of our lives. In the world, disordered values and a distorted worldview have become what is normal and accepted. All around us, the world stands on a moral high ground that it has constructed itself. That's what the world is. So, second question is, how does it shape us? How does the world shape us? There is a phenomenon called social contagion. Social contagion. It suggests that our culture spreads like a virus from person to person in society. Just like a... I'm trying to see which of you are yawning now. Just like a yawn spreads from one person to another, our society spreads through each other. Our culture, what we believe is right and wrong, spreads from one person to another. Just like a virus, just like, no, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Still too soon. Still too soon. History is filled to the brim with examples of this. There are great examples of social contagion, good things spreading through society, and there's also very bad ones. And I want to focus in on some of the really bad ones. Our country has had some really bad examples of social contagion. For example, did you know that the very first legal interracial marriage happened in North Carolina in 1977? Just 46 years ago. A law was written into existence in 1715, making it an offense punishable by serious prison time. It remained a law here in this state until 1977. Alabama didn't remove laws against interracial marriage from their constitution until the year 2000. The year 2000. That is only scratching the surface of the horrors that were considered morally correct in our recent history. The truth is that all the atrocities 
our society has yet to recover from were once considered by the majority in this culture to be morally correct. And yet, even today, we think we are the best that as a culture, we are the best at defining what is right and wrong, which to me is insanity, considering that a generation ago, interracial marriage was illegal. The great sin of the world is thinking that we are better equipped to define right and wrong than the maker of right and wrong and the author of the universe. To me, it's absolute madness to let the world, the culture, the people around me tell me what is truth and what is right and wrong when there has only been one source throughout history that has remained consistent. And honestly, the church hasn't always gotten this right. I'll concede that during this season where interracial marriage was illegal, the church was a big proponent. Absolutely devastating to think of. Scripture was taken out of context and there were pastors like me standing on stages preaching against it. And that is what happens when social contagion infiltrates the church. There is only one source of truth that has remained consistent from the beginning. Do you guys remember Napster? I was born in 1987. Lighten it up a little bit. So when Napster hit, I was primed for it. Remember getting those blank discs out and burning them full of your favorite songs that you waited two days for them to download because your mom kept making phone calls and kicking you off the internet? No, mom, I was downloading Goo Goo Dolls. It was awesome. All the music you could ever want for free. No subscription streaming back then. It didn't exist for the Generation Z in the house. We did have streaming available. It was your FM radio. And you could download it easily as long as you had a blank cassette tape and a cassette recorder. And you would just listen to your favorite radio station all day long, hoping to hear Do You Believe in Life After Love by Cher so that you could record it and listen to it later. Napster changed all that. When Napster came along, all of a sudden I could have whatever song I wanted and download it onto a CD for free to listen to anytime. Now, do you know why Napster is gone today? Why it doesn't exist anymore? It did not just get outpaced by Rhapsody. It did not just disappear because Spotify came onto the scene. No, Napster is gone because it was illegal. It was stealing. And the technology was too new for there to be specific laws against it. So it took several years for those laws to take down Napster. And in the meantime, we were all guilty of, do you know what crime we were guilty of? Piracy. We were pirates. We didn't have eye patches. Some of us might have, but, but we, we were pirating music and every single one of us felt great about it. Nobody had any guilt. We didn't feel bad. These people were rich already. It was fine. It's just a little bit of piracy. An entire society decided to be okay with stealing. It's so easy for our society to move the needle of right and wrong based on a cultural moment. I can't think of anything crazier than allowing the society that we live in to be your barometer of right and wrong. History has shown us that is an exercise in madness. 
There are so many examples of this in the Bible, it's hard to narrow it down. The people of God were constantly being infiltrated by social contagion. They were taking the power of right and wrong away from God and placing it on themselves, and the results were always disastrous. One of my favorite examples is in the book of Exodus, chapter 32. And in the book of Exodus, the people of God have really been delivered by God. These people, these same people, were living for hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them miraculously from slavery. These plagues came and forced Pharaoh's hand to let them go. And then Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued them through the desert, and God opened up the Red Sea so that all of these same people could cross through on dry land, and he closed the sea on the Egyptian army behind them. And they watched it. Amazing. These people were being led by a pillar of fire at night and clouds by day. These people were dining on bread that literally fell from heaven. They woke up and it was there every morning. These people had more reason to believe in God, more tangible evidence of God than you and I ever will. And yet, social contagion changed their perspective on God. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. It said, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this guy Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what happened to him. He's been gone for only a few days, mind you. Aaron, Aaron is the brother of Moses and the first Levitical priest in the order of priesthood. Okay, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. They're all wearing gold earrings, which is amazing to me. That's incredible. I'm jealous of this society. Bring them to me. They must have looked like pirates. So all these people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. This is their pastor. Uh, and then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Do you hear the insanity? These people know that the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, delivered them from Egypt. But when Moses, their leader, is gone for a few days, receiving the Ten Commandments, hearing and catching a glimpse of God, hearing the voice of God, that at this moment, these people are down there melting all their gold earrings into a golden calf that they made. And they said, this is the best cow of all time. This cow that we made, this is the cow that brought us up out of Egypt. It's like you guys literally made it five minutes ago, and now you're declaring that it was what delivered you from Egypt 30 chapters ago. And then Aaron saw this, and he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, speaking of the cow. And the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And so, this is why as a church, we build what we believe from the Bible up. Because e even their religious leader was susceptible to this social contagion. Everyone around them needed something different to believe in. And they, they, it was too hard waiting on God. It was too hard waiting for his words to come back. So they said, we'll just make our own truth. We'll rebel against God and we'll define right and wrong for ourselves. And the Lord said to Moses, go down 
Because your people, whom you have brought up out of Egypt, kind of sounds like a, a, a mom talking to a dad right there. Your son just did this. He says, your people, who you've brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bound down to it. They've sacrificed to it. And they have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These people who've seen all of this from God have now started worshiping a golden cow made by Moses' brother. How could this happen? This phenomena of social contagion. All of them said it was right, so it had to be right. Who was anyone to question that? Nobody is above this. Proverbs chapter 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. There is only one standard of right and wrong. And it has been exactly the same since the beginning of time. And it has led people to a pathway of joy and peace from the creation of humanity. And the Bible is screaming out for us to understand that. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 do not conform to the pattern of this world. And it is a pattern. And here's one of our greatest sins is that we think we're better than the generation that came before us. How, how foolish were they a generation ago that they, they believed these things about interracial marriage. We're so much better than they are. We're better people. We've got a better understanding of right and wrong. We're smarter. Every generation thinks it's smarter than the generation that came before it. And this is a pattern. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. We can trace this pattern all the way back to the garden. It is how people have always acted and behaved and believed. We've always thought we were better, but I just can't help but wonder three or four generations from now what we're going to look back on and see something in this world that was so morally corrupt we can't even imagine that it was real. Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But it's so hard for us to accept all of this. And this is the genius of the enemy's strategy. Deceptive ideas and disordered desires normalize. That the enemy puts these deceptive ideas inside of you. The same ones that he's speaking over and over and over again. Surely you know more than God. Surely God is just trying to keep the best things for him. That's, is that even what God said? We don't even know if that's for sure what God said. This deceptive ideas. And they play into these disordered desires inside of us, our flesh. And then the piece that drives it all home is that it's normalized in a sinful society. All these things that we want to be true, they become normal in the world around us. And so we just accept them as true. Normalized in a sinful society. You see, the way that God designed us, our relationships are supposed to shape us. The idea of community is vital to scripture. We talk about finding freedom here at the gathering, and I believe that you find freedom in community through the influence of others. It was a part of God's original plan, but the problem is it works against us in a broken and sinful society. Because of our disordered desires, our flesh, and our need to belong to a community and our likeliness to be drawn into social contagion, we cannot resist the marriage of I want it and everyone is doing it. We can't resist it. 
I want it, and everyone is doing it. And so that's how the world shapes us. Pretty scary stuff. So number three, real simple. What are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do about it? What are our options? Our nation was Christian for a long time. The majority of it was a, was a Christian nation. That was kind of how we defined our moral code here in this country. Honestly, I don't know if that was for the better or for the worse. There were a lot of things that entered into the church in that season that are still a big problem for us today. Now we live in a post-Christian country, culture, society. And there's just no denying it. The, the latest generation, only 26% of them go to church. The majority are going a different way. We live in a post-Christian world. Some Christians have responded to that by removing themselves from the world altogether, having as little contact as possible with people who have a different worldview as them, pulling away and isolating yourself to protect against the pressures of the sinful society we live in. That's an attractive option. Other Christians have done what Christians have done since the time of Moses and before it. They've folded into the world. They believe in Jesus or some of his teachings, but allow their morality to be defined by the culture. The culture will define what is right and wrong for me, and I will apply that to the Bible. The culture will tell me where truth is, and I will apply that to God's truth. The parts of the Bible that don't fit in, they get tossed out. And this makes these Christians feel morally superior because they're not in disagreement with the people around them. That's an attractive option. Both of these options are very, very wrong. The Bible warns us over and over and over again not to let this world define our morality. In 1 John chapter 2, John the Apostle says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You got to hear John correctly here. Because you might hear that and think, oh, John is saying that we should hate the world. We should stand against it. We should oppose it. We've got we to get on street corners with angry signs and megaphones. That's what we got to do. But John actually, in this same letter, in this same book of 1 John, just a couple chapters later, he talks about how as Christians, our greatest command is to love the people that we encounter, all of them. Love them to the point of self-sacrifice. That's what John says. He says, Jesus has called you to just love people, to be an army of followers of Jesus who go out and love this world to the point that it's confusing to them. Love them. So that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that this is, you've got to just be mean to everybody. No, he is saying not to love the world or anything in the world. Love the people, not the culture. If anyone loves this culture, then the love of the father is not in them. There's just, there's two roads. They both go in different directions. There is the road of going along with what this world says, living in this culture, being a part of this culture and letting this culture define your faith. And then there is this other path, and that is to live in the teachings of Jesus, to follow in the way of Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus, to do the, what he has called us to do and to love these people well, but not be influenced by them. And those paths go in very different directions. They don't end up at the same place. 
For everything in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Two different pathways. One way just ends, gets worse. The other way goes on forever with peace and hope and joy and satisfaction in a level you've never even considered before. Blessing deep down inside of your soul. And John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is all of those things that we've been talking about the last couple weeks. Sexual gratification, gluttony, addiction. Uh, the, the lust of the eyes is the desire to have whatever we want. Money and power and possessions and attention. And I see it and I want it. I'm going to get it. It's the lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life is the desire to be our own God. What a powerful one. The desire to be our own God, to be our own judge of good and evil, to be admired and respected by people. And these three sins are all fed by the strategies of the enemy and the world that we serve. And so John gives us a strict warning not to follow it, illustrating this idea that there's two different ways you can go. And one way leads to, to good, everlasting life, to peace, to everything you've ever wanted. And the other way leads to death. And he's warning us. James comes in and he's very direct about it. James chapter 4, verse 4. James, just like he is with everything, he's very direct in his book. And he says, you adulterous people which is what God called the people of Israel when they were worshiping the cow. He said, these are an adulterous people. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are two paths. You cannot walk them both. You can't have a foot on one and a foot on the other. It is one or the other. And so we read this, and maybe your reaction is, well, then we should just pull away entirely. Option A is the only option. It's a good option. It's the best option. We'll just remove ourselves from the world. That temptation won't be a problem. We're going to be fine. It'll be great. But then I remember what Jesus said. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, just that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. And so sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. You have to be in this world because this world is starving for truth. This world is starving for peace. This world is starving for hope, for real joy. The, the search for happiness that everyone you know is on goes nowhere without the joy of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, just as you sent me into this world, I am sending them into it. Jesus went to the cross so that you could have his joy and that you could bring it to others. And that means you cannot remove yourself from this world because you are this world's only hope. You are the hope of the world or you carry the hope of the world inside of you that you can share with all of those around you. In the world, but not defined by it. Sent to it to be a part of it, not influenced by it. Ultimately, if we're going to live a life that is peace-filled and joy-filled and defined by blessing and satisfaction, which is what we all want, then we're going to have to stop letting this world define our right and wrong or even be, we, we can't even be our own judge of right and wrong. 
We have to let God be the one who defines right and wrong. We have to be, let God be the one who tells us what is and is not truth. We have to trust that he knows best and that he's the only consistent thing from the dawn of time. There has been a wavering moral compass in every society since the creation of man. It's always been there. Only one thing has remained consistent. Our Father in heaven, what he says is truth, what he says is right, what he says is wrong. And the dreams that he has for you. And they've always been good. Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It is insane to let the same culture that has done all these atrocities direct your right and wrong. It is much better to let the one whose ways are higher than mine. Even though we, I don't always understand it, it's sometimes hard to grasp, but I trust that he's a better judge of it than I am. So we live in this world and we don't let it define us. We live in this world. We go into this world. We bring hope into this world. We are not defined by this world. Now, what about social contagion? How do we stay away from it? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we accomplish this? Well, that's what we're gonna talk about next week as we close this series. So you have to come back. Got them. Today, as we close, I'll give you this to consider. In the first century, the very first Christians were living in the Roman Empire. You guys, it was the Roman Empire. Child sacrifices were not unheard of. They went to places where people worshiped a pantheon of false gods. Their temples and their idols were all around them everywhere all the time. They're living out a brand new faith that nobody believed in yet. And yet, they never let their morality be defined by the society that they lived in. Acts chapter 2 tells us how that they did it. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the gospels, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and a prayer. Do you know that in that society, in the Roman Empire, it was the first time adoption was a thing? It became a real thing because the church noticed that what was normal in Roman culture was if a child didn't have a caretaker, they just lived on the streets. That's what they did with them. They just kind of tossed them out there to survive on their own. And if they didn't make it, they didn't make it. The church saw that and said, we're, we're going to do something about this. We're going to give these kids a home to live in. We're going to be their parents. They're going to be a part of this. Moving in a vastly different direction than the culture around them. How did they do it? How did they live that way? They devoted themselves to the gospels, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is what it looks like when the church is the church. When the church is the church, then we can move each other in the right direction. Then social contagion works to our benefit. When I can influence you, you can influence me, and we can influence one another closer to the message of Jesus, closer to the practices of Jesus, closer to what it means to be like him, to, to live like him. When we involve ourselves in the church, when we wrap ourselves up in this community, we've got a better chance than we ever had on our own to make it through this world, staying in this world, but not being of this world in a Christ-focused community. Now, I know that's hard for some of us to accept because, well, the church hasn't always done this well. 
And I love this quote from Eugene Peterson in the opening of James in his paraphrase, the message. It says, when believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. And outsiders on observing this conclude that there is nothing to the religion business except perhaps business and dishonest business at that. Insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are rather places where human misbehavior is brought out into the open, faced, and dealt with. The church isn't and never will be perfect, but we are doing our best together to be built on the foundation of the teachings of the Bible, on what God says, and on the practices of Jesus. And if we keep pursuing those things and we do them in lockstep community, we can bring a hope into this city unlike anything it has ever seen before. That's the power of the church. Next week, we'll come back and we'll close this series and we'll talk about how to bring all this together and have a lasting defense against these enemies. Maybe you're in here today And you've been wrapped up in this world for far too long and you want a better way. You are in need of that hope and in need of that peace. And it is freely available to you right now. All you have to do is commit yourself to Christ, to enter into a relationship with him. And it starts with just a a prayer. You just close your eyes, bow your head, say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Forgive me for believing that I could. I need you. I want you to be the one that defines my truth. And so all that I am from this moment forward, I am yours. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.